So just over a month ago, uh, my wife Corinne, my son Samuel and I went to Langley to watch our other son Gabe uh, play basketball for Trinity Western University. We were a little bit worried because uh, the game was scheduled when Trinity Western was still on Christmas break. So we thought, ah, there won't be many people, won't be many fans out to watch, right? So anyways, we get to the game and there wasn't a lot of people there, but uh, partway through, just at the beginning of the first quarter, about seven guys came walking in, and they had Trinity Western University sweatshirts on. So we were so relieved, we were so excited that there was going to be some fans there. They sat right in front of us. But it became pretty evident early in the game that these guys were not there to cheer for Trinity Western University. They had a friend on the other team, and they were cheering for the friend on the other team. Uh, in, in fact, they were cheering quite Uh, enthusiastically against Trinity Western University. Let me be a little bit more specific. They had one particular player on Trinity Western's team who they really did not like. And that player happened to be my son, Gabe. Okay? So they made it very evident. They were uh, trash-talking all game long. And if you have kids that grew up playing sports, you're kind of used to it a little bit. But it's just a little bit annoying, especially because they were from, you know, Trinity Western. And uh, anyways, we left at the end of the game. And I said to my son, Samuel, I said, you want to come back and watch again tomorrow? See, the way U Sports works in Canada is when a team flies in from another province, they play a back-to-back. They play the same team Friday and Saturday night. And Samuel says to me, I don't want, I don't want to come back. I don't want to listen to those guys again. But I did come back. I, Corinne and I came back on Saturday, and, and we made sure to sit kind of further up so that they weren't right in front of us. But the same guy showed up again, and they picked up right from where they left off. I mean, they did not like Gabe, and they made it very, very clear. So near the end of the game, one of the guys, the guy that I guess had been the most vocal throughout the first two games, uh, stood up, walked partway onto the court to uh, challenge Gabe to uh, fight. So I look over to Corinne to say something, and Corinne's already on her way down the bleachers. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Here we go. It's about to get fun in here. So... Uh, if you don't know Corinne, she's the toughest manis, and it's not even close, okay? So Corinne's on her way down there. The guy who had been challenging Gabe to a fight wouldn't look at her, but there was another big guy uh, with him, and uh, he said quite loudly, if you want to talk to me, let's go over there and talk in private. So now my other son Lucas is on his way down the bleachers, and I'm like, wow, this is really going to get good, you know? And I'm looking at the seven of them, I'm looking at Corinne and Lucas, I'm like, my money's on Corinne and Lucas, but let's just see how this plays out, but now I'm kind of on my way down the bleachers too. Corinne says to them, uh, if you ridicule my son in public, I will rebuke you in public. Okay, so that kind of settled things down a little bit. Game ends. I go into the court, give my son Gabe a big hug, and I'm on my way back up the bleachers, and the guy who had stepped onto the floor to uh, fight Gabe looks at me, and he's smirking. Now, before I tell you what I did, maybe I, I, should put in, I should tell you what I felt like doing. What I felt like doing was scattering his teeth all across the gym floor. That's what I really felt like doing in that moment, you know? Uh, but what I did do is on my way up the bleachers as he's looking at me, I just said this. I said, uh, how many points did you score tonight? Because if you know me, you'll know this. I've got a real issue, especially amongst young men, maybe even more specifically young men within the church community, that have become more about critiquing than creating. More about tearing down and, and, and less about building up. More, more known for what they're against than really ever standing up for what they are for. So anyways, that 
kind of happened, and as we were walking out the gym that night, there was a group of people standing, and they looked at me, and it turns out they knew who I was. Which you gotta be careful when you speak in front of people all the time. It kind of keeps you uh, careful with how you act, because often you, don't, you won't know them, but they will know who you are. And so I'm walking out of the gym, and I just overhear as I'm walking by this group, and they say, what kind of pastor? And then I left. And I'm driving home that night, and I'm thinking to myself, what kind of pastor? What kind of pastor? And I started answering. I started thinking to myself, well, a really imperfect one. <laughs> That's for sure. Really needs Jesus. And really, really believes that Jesus is the hope, the hope to a world that is hurting and broken. What kind of pastor? Oh, also this kind of pastor. I'm also this kind of pastor. If you come at my family, you will come through me. I'm also that kind of pastor. And I tell you that story to tell you this. You're family to me. You're you're family to me whether you're watching online, whether you're here for the first time or the 400th, you're family to me. And if you've been here 400 times, you know something about me. I'll tell you over and over again, man, we got a lot more in common than we have differences. You know, we we got a lot more that should kind of be pulling us together than should be tearing us apart. You know what I mean? We're we're family. And I I guess I wanted to tell you that uh, I'm fighting for you. Like over these last 10 days, I feel it more strongly than I ever have that if darkness uh, has a problem with you, it has a problem with me. I'm fighting for you. And I, I tell you that because I'm not sure maybe the last time someone's been fighting for you. See, Jesus talked about the fact that we are right smack dab in the middle of a great spiritual battle. In John chapter 10, he explained it this way. He said, I've come into human history to give you abundant life, but the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. John Eldridge explained it this way. He said, the story of your life is the story of a long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows what you could be and fears it. I'm with you. I stand with you. I'm fighting for you. That's why I'm here. That's it. Because here's what I know about you. You were placed on this planet to tell a great story, to live a great story. And because of that, you're going to face battles in your life that are so big that you were never meant to fight them alone. And God wants to fight for you. And so all throughout this series, we've been talking about posture. Posture is important because posture will determine, your posture will determine the, the degree to which God's power plays out in your battle. That's one of the reasons that we come together, to kind of reset our posture, to turn the tide again, to gain some momentum every week. Posture, and overarchingly in this series, I, I, I suggest to you that a power posture for you and me is a posture of faith, a posture of faith. You know, like humility, obedience, expectancy. This is God, I need you. God, I follow you. God, I trust you. That's a power posture. I've been trying to get even a little bit more specific too, talking about uh, our, uh, our sociological posture, you know, how we posture ourselves in community with other people. I've been talking about a chronological posture, you know, how, how we posture ourselves when we're, you know, looking back at the past and looking ahead at the future, how do we posture ourselves in time and, and a directional posture of following God one step at a time. But here in this last week of a series called The Now, Um, We're kind of finishing off a three-week study on a blessed 
posture, a blessed posture, because I kinda wanna have a different conversation for you and I around the whole concept of sin and temptation. P, because sin comes in all shapes and sizes. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, he said it's simple to fall, there's an infinity of angles at which one can fall. There's an infinity of angles at which one can fall. Sin comes in all shapes and sizes. But there's really only three common temptations that lead us into those infinity of angles at which we can fall. The Bible refers to uh, those three temptations as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I wanna have a different conversation around sin and a different conversation around temptation because when I hear conversations in the church and outside the church about sin, I find it gets real weird. You know, conversations around sin kinda go like this. Sin is bad. It's really, really bad. And if you sin, you're bad. So if I tell you that you're bad enough, you might be good. That's never worked for me. It's never worked for you either. Or conversations around temptation inside and outside the church. Like, what are you, an idiot? Temptation isn't tempting. That's never worked for me either, because it's not true. Let me think, it's the same root word, temptation and tempting. So I wanna start here instead. I wanna start on this rectangle. I called it a square in the first stuff a few weeks ago and everyone made fun of me. So I'm on a rectangle, it's not a square, and let's call this rectangle, okay? Let's call this place God's plan. Jeremiah 29.11 says, God has a plan for you, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan to give you a hope and a future. Psalm 37 verse four says that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 23 said, the Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside still waters. He restores your soul. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, you're God's work of arts. You're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for you to do, which is a really good news because Acts 20 says this, that you're blessed when you receive. You're blessed when you receive, and you're even more blessed when you give, okay? So here I am on this rectangle called God's plan, right? And here it is, and and overarching, let's call it a place of blessing. I'm in a blessed posture, I'm right here, okay? Well, what's temptation? Temptation is right there, just on the other side of the rectangle. (laughs) And temptation says, what are you doing in there? That's stupid. Isn't it a little cramped? A tiny little closet called God's plan. And, and it's hard because I'm blessed. I'm in a posture of blessing, but I'm still in a broken world. So there's a battle even within the blessing. Does that make sense? I, I'm, I'm spiritually blessed, but I'm still battling. And temptation says, come on, there's got to be a better way. Look at this cramped little closet. You got to step out. And the lust of the flesh says, if it feels good, do it. And the lust of the eye says, if it looks good, have it. And today I want to talk about the pride of life because here's what the pride of life is going to tell you. If you're not worthless, prove it. If you're not worthless, prove it. And so temptation says, look at you in this cramped little closet called God's plan. You're in bondage, you just gotta step out, so you do. You know, this is, this is, this is supposed to be freedom. And I look in that beautiful landscape of freedom, turns out it's just like a painting. And all this expanse turns out to be smoke and mirrors and it looks real small and what I thought was gonna be freedom ends up being bondage and what I thought was bondage ends up being freedom because I look back at that closet, turns out it's actually a wardrobe and it's whole world of hope and future and provision and protection and delight and blessing. And here's what sin does, real simple. 
Okay? So here I was. <sighs> Blessed posture. And I went out here, and sin says, oh, man, there's no way back. See, what I thought was, what I thought was bondage was freedom. I want to go back, but sin says there is no way back. And that's why we call Jesus a way maker. Jesus made a way where there was no way. And there's always a way back. And so what I I want to suggest to you in 2020, I want this to be a well-worn path for you. I want this to be a well-worn path for you. I want you to look back at 2020 and see a well-worn path. And maybe you look at me and say, well, shouldn't my path be pristine, Mike? Like, shouldn't I situate myself right here and never leave? Sure, but I find that the people who think their path is pristine are actually standing right here just outside of God's plan, and they think they're in it, but, but, but they're in this place of sin called uh, what, arrogance and self-righteousness. So I think a good year for you, a good year for me, let's make this a well-worn path. But today I wanna to talk about the third temptation, the pride of life, because here's what the pride of life is gonna tell you. If you're not worthless, if you're not worth, prove it. There's an author and a speaker who I really admire named John Ortberg. Years and years ago, he started working at this big church in one of the largest cities in North America. And obviously, he was super, super busy at work. But he had to balance that with being busy at home. He had a growing family. You know, fit in date nights and soccer practice and piano lessons and parent-teacher meetings. And he got so busy and so overwhelmed that he... Uh, phoned a, a mentor of his, a philosopher and a theologian named Dallas Willard. Listen to this. He said, how in the world when I'm feeling so busy and so overwhelmed, how can I stay spiritually healthy? And Dallas Willard paused, and maybe you and I should too. What would you tell him? What would you tell John Orberg in this season of incredible busyness feeling incredibly overwhelmed, how do you stay spiritually healthy? Because what Dallas Willard said after he paused was this, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now imagine the scene because John Orberg's sitting there, he's got him on speakerphone, he's got a pen and a piece of paper, he's, uh, he's like, ready, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, got it, next. And Willard paused and he said, There is nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life because hurry is the enemy of the spiritual life. I say that to you because back in 1990, January of 1990, Time Magazine devoted an entire issue to life in 1990 and looking ahead to the new millennium which would launch in 2000. And they said that uh, the pace of life in 1990 was so fast that it was unsustainable. But they looked ahead to the year 2000 and and the new millennium and they said because of advances in computing and technology starting around the year 2000, um, work days were gonna have to get shorter. Vacations were gonna have to get longer. Retirement age was going to have to get lower. In fact, Time Magazine said this in 1990. If they had to pick one word to describe the new millennium launching in 2000, that word, thank goodness, that word was going to be, you ready for it? Leisure. How's that working for you? (laughs) 
It's funny because they've done studies, and what they found is 30 years later, here we are in 2020, guess what? We walk 10% faster than we did in 1990. We eat 10% faster than we did in 1990. We talk 10% faster than we did in 1990. And it's taken its toll. Anxiety is rampant in adults and in little kids. Relationships are suffering because relationships, they say, happen in the margins. What if there are no margins? Recently, Great Britain, the government of Great Britain, appointed a minister of loneliness. Because studies showed that 10 million people in Great Britain describe themselves as profoundly lonely every minute of every day. Marriages are suffering. There's lots of husbands and wives who would tell you they can't remember the last time that they took the time that they had the time to connect with their spouse. Here's what I think we should do. I think we should ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Psychology Today agrees. They have a term for our culture. It's called hurry sickness. By definition, hurry sickness is a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. As if that isn't bad enough, it's also defined as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. I know you can't relate to that, neither can I, but apparently some people struggle with that. <laughs> you might be looking at me right now going, hey Mike, remember you did this cool little thing with the square slash rectangle and like you said we were going to talk about the, you, th- you said we were going to talk about the pride of life today. Oh, I am. No, no, you're talking about hurry. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I, I, I could stand up here and I could give you three stages of pride, right? The first is vanity. We all struggle with it. That's why if you're in a group picture and someone shows you the picture, you look initially and maybe even exclusively at yourself, okay? Vanity. And, and the second stage of pride is stubbornness where you're, you become more concerned with being right than getting it right. And the third stage, it's the, the third stage is isolation, You know, like if you find yourself thinking that you're the smartest person in every room for your whole life, eventually, for all intents and purposes, you're the only person in every room. But we're going to talk about hurry instead, because watch this. Where does does it come from? I'm standing here, and, 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 and the pride of life says what? If you're not worthless, prove it. Matter. Win. Achieve, succeed, and it drives us. And hurry and pride is a self-perpetuating cycle in our lives. See, I think we should ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. God's been saying it since the beginning. The fourth of God's 10 commandments says ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On the first six days, God created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything under the sea. And on the seventh day, he rested. You should too. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Jesus modeled it. Mark chapter six says this. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. 
Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. See, the, the pride of life says this, if you don't succeed, you don't matter. If you don't win, you're worthless. If you don't achieve, you're nothing. You gotta prosper, you gotta accumulate, you gotta, you gotta acquire. Orpric said it this way, the truth is as much as we complain about it, we are drawn to hurry. It makes us feel important. It keeps the adrenaline pumping. It means we don't have to look too closely at the heart or life. It keeps us from feeling our loneliness. It's weird, you know. You know why you're here? More than any other reason, the reason you were placed on this planet is to know and be known by God and people. To love and be loved by God and people. That's it. The New York Post said this, maybe the biggest cost we've encountered already is the harm to human relationships. Instead of enhancing close bonds, technology has facilitated avoidance of direct person-to-person contact, which takes too much time. We maintain the illusion that we're connected more closely than ever by the number of Facebook likes we accumulate. But it's all fast. Now, this instant, everything is impulse. Our sense of connection exists in the action, not an accumulated, deepening experience. An accumulated, deepening experience. Yes. See, it's okay to be busy once in a while. It's just not okay to have a hurried soul. It's amazing because you know what you and me are called? We're called human beings. Human beings. What do I think you should do? Just be. Just be. The pride of life says, man, like if you're not worthless, prove it. It's amazing to me. You understand that everything that ever needed to be proven about your value has already been proven? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stepped into human history for you. You got nothing to prove to anybody. The, the, the pride of life says, man, if you were really valuable, you'd win. You'd achieve. You'd succeed. But everything that needed to be proven about your value has already been proven. Jesus died on a cross so that your sins could be forgiven. You got nothing to prove to anybody. The, the, the pride of life says, man, if you don't prosper, if you're not popular, if you don't accumulate, you don't matter. And it's weird though because anything that, that needed to be proven about whether or not you matter, Jesus already proved by rising again for you. Human being. Like I wonder, can I just be? 
I think it was St. Augustine of Hippo who said this. He prayed, God, you made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Here's the thing. No matter how much you achieve, no matter how much you accumulate, no matter how much you, uh, uh, no matter how much success, no matter how much popularity, no matter how much prosperity, it's never enough. So what I think we should do is I think we should ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Look, I think it's good to achieve. I think it's good to succeed. I think it's good to win. I think it's good to create. I think it's good to innovate. I think that's awesome. I do. But not to prove that you matter. Do you understand? So, so like I'm here, I, I, I'm just, I'm being, I'm, I'm being, I'm a human being, here I am. And I know that I'm loved. And so I achieve out of my state of lovedness. Is that a word? No, well, who cares? It's just, it is now, okay? It, it is in Red Deer. Okay, so, so but, but, but listen, I, I achieve out of, out of the truth that I already am loved. I create out of the truth that I already am valuable. I already am worthy. I already am enough. So I achieve and I create out of that state of being completely and totally loved. Or, listen, you've never heard Mike Manis say this, or not. Go out and achieve. Create, succeed, or don't. There's nothing that you've ever done that's made God love you less. And there's nothing that you could ever do that would make him love you more. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in him. You got nothing to prove to anyone. This is kind of funny. I'm going to give you four ways. I'm going to go fast. I'm going to give you four fast ways to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I do want to get a little practical. So I'll give you four S's. Four S's. You ready? Number one, strategy. Just simple strategy. Can I give you a couple ideas? Driving the slow lane. Next time you're in the supermarket, if someone comes behind you with just a few items or maybe more than a few items, tell them to go ahead. After they've regained consciousness and ask you why you allowed them to go in front of you, just say, because I'm not in a, I'm not in a hurry. And it's probably never happened to them before, so when they keep looking at you, tell them you go to Southside Church and invite them next Sunday. Have a, strategy, have a strategy around technology. I'm a little bit like you. Um, I think I could spend my whole day if I wanted to answering and initiating emails, answering and initiating text messages, answering and initiate, initiating on social media. But I find that when I spend a lot of time doing that, I never really get deep, you know what I mean? Like, n- n- I never really do create or innovate or do some deep thinking or some deep soul searching. So for me, this is my strategy. I set a timer for 55 minutes and I shut everything out. 
55 minutes. And if I'm on a roll at the end of 55 minutes, I just keep going. Then I take a little break and reset a timer for 55 minutes. So number one is just strategy, just simple strategy. Number two, silence. Silence. Um, like maybe even when you talk to somebody, don't feel like you gotta fill every second of silence. I hope you have a friend or two in your life that you can just be with. Just be with, do you know what I mean? We don't have to fill all the silence. If you don't, find one. Turn off the radio once in a while when you're driving in your car. Have you ever heard anybody say, um, I do my best thinking in the shower? Have you ever heard anyone say that? You wanna know why? Because it's quiet. I got a buddy who's a plumber in the States sent me a text a while ago. He's like, man, I just got this awesome thing, a Bluetooth speaker that fits in my shower head. I, I, answer, I start answering right away. I'm like, dude, I need one of those. And then I'm like, no, nah, maybe I'm okay. It's okay to have a little bit of silence. Strategy, silence, solitude. Find, find a place, find a time once in a while to just be by yourself. Henry, Henry Nowen Henry said, when I get to a place of solitude, I tear down my scaffolding. Scaffolding is all the stuff that we use in our lives to prop ourselves up. Success, achievement, and popularity that I... In solitude, you tear all that stuff down. And we talk a lot about living our lives for an audience of one. You know what? I find it easiest to remember that I'm living my life for an audience of one when it's just and him. I know this doesn't really make a ton of sense logically, but I'll share it anyways. You can use solitude with another person too. Like just before Christmas, a buddy of mine who goes to Southside and I on a Thursday afternoon, we left Chilliwack, we drove out to Hope Pet Supper, then went into the mountains to a camp. Hung out that night, the next morning we both woke up and went our separate ways for hours and then came back together and just shared a little bit of what we felt God was saying and then prayed for each other. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Strategy, silence, solitude, and finally, stillness. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. There's an incredible story in Mark chapter four. The title of this section in the message version says this, uh, the wind ran out of breath. The wind ran out of breath. Let me read it for you. Late in the day, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. They took him in the boat as he was. Other boats came along a huge storm came up. Waves poured into the boat, threatening to sink it. And Jesus was in the stern, head on a pillow, sleeping. <laughs> they roused him, saying, Teacher, is it nothing to you that we're going down? Awake now, he told the wind to pipe down, and he said to the sea, Quiet, be still. I wonder if he was talking to the waves or if he was talking to you.
be still. The wind ran out of breath. The sea became smooth as glass. Jesus reprimanded his disciples. Why are you such cowards? Don't you have any faith at all? They were in absolute awe, staggered. Who is this anyway? Wind and sea at his beck and call. Here's something that I know about you and I know about me, I know about us. Man, we live in this world and there's waves and there's wind and there's waves and there's wind. Man, the waves of public opinion. <laughs> waves of success and achievement and the, and the, and the wind of opinions and, 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 uh, and prosperity and accumulation. And, and what's crazy is you live in 2020, look at when the wind and the waves are all kind of like headed in the right direction, you're on fire, you're, you're moving, it's great. But then something happens somewhere along the line and it's not all headed in the right direction anymore and next thing you know we feel like we're drowning. And here's what I think you and me should do. What, what, what about this? What if we ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives? What if we just be? Because I'll tell you something. You have absolutely, completely, totally nothing, nothing, nothing to prove. Everything that could ever have needed to be proved about you, Jesus already proved. And here's what's crazy, listen to this. The waves and the wind, they still know his name. He's still Savior and he's still Lord and he's still with you, and he's still for you. You got nothing to prove to anybody. So I was just thinking, what about this? What if we just be? Anything that ever needed to be proven about you, he already proved, and the waves and the wind still know his name. Let's pray. So I wonder how you're doing today. <laughs> I wonder if you've been caught up a little bit in that cycle of hurry, thinking that you got so much to prove and you're so busy and you're so overwhelmed and you just are in a place of restlessness. And I want to tell you something. Jesus loves you. Jesus for you. He stepped into human history so that you could find rest. And if today is the day that you want to invite him in, he died for you. He rose again for you. You have absolutely nothing to prove to anybody. If today is the day you want to accept his salvation and accept his rest with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, you want to just raise your hand right now so I can pray for you. Nice and high if you don't mind. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. If you just raised your hand, you can put it down. I'm going to pray out loud, and I would invite you to pray along with me. <sighs> Jesus, today, I just want to be. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That anything that needed to be proven about me, you've already proved. 
So today, Jesus, I ask you to be my savior. You died for me, so I ask that you would forgive all my sin, take away all my guilt and all my shame, today, tomorrow, and forever. And Jesus, today I invite you to be my Lord. Thank you that you rose again to give me strength for today, hope for tomorrow, and the promise of eternity. Lead me one next step at a time. And God, for all of us here today, no matter whether we've been a Christian for 47 seconds or 47 years, God, we come to you and we confess that at times, man, we think we got so much to do and so much to prove. Today, we just rest in you. We rest in you. I pray that you would keep bringing us back to that place of rest. You're great and you're good and you're with us and you're for us and we're thankful in your name. Amen. Let's celebrate, church. It's kind of cool because it's Baptism Sunday and everyone's kind of getting ready to go. So I just have one last thought. What a perfect baptism passage, hey? Because that's, that's, that's all baptism is. You go in the water and you come back out and you say, Jesus, I'm placing myself right back here. I rest in you. My hope is in you. My strength is in you. Anything that needed to be proven about me was proved by you and I'm gonna live that way. So I'll tell you this, if you sign up for baptism, we're gonna dunk you. Depending on your lifestyle, we might leave you under for two minutes or so, you never know about that. But, um, but, but, but honestly, if you are a Christian here today, in, in other words, if you've asked Jesus into your life and you've yet to be baptized, um, Sarah's gonna be standing right over there against the wall. There she is, she's waving. Just go over and say, today's my day. We'd love to uh, celebrate with you. So for now, just turn your attention to the big screen. I remember when my athlete toward God turned into anger. I was eight years old, and I remember coming home from school and walking into my grandparents' living room. My entire family was there with swollen faces. I knew something was terribly wrong. My uncle, who was like my best friend, we spent a lot of time together and we were very close, was sick. As the months passed, he got sicker and sicker, and the reality set in that we were going to lose him. When my uncle died, I was devastated and I lashed out at God. God had changed from the passive being I remembered when I went to Sunday school to someone cruel who took away people you loved. When I was in grade seven, I started experiencing mysterious and very intense symptoms. I didn't think it was serious, so I kept it to myself for a long time. One night, I took to Google, which we all know is a bad idea. Words like cancer started popping up, and suddenly I was eight years old again in my grandparents' living room. I was so afraid. The next five years is a blur of blood transfusions, new medications, and misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. Nothing was working, and I wasn't getting any better. I remember so vividly my worst day during this time. I was in grade eight, and I had just undergone surgery to have uterine masses surgically removed, and I cried for two days straight. Everything felt so dark and hopeless, and I couldn't see an end to any of this. During this time, I remember feeling so angry. Through all of it, I tried to be a good person. I got good grades, I volunteered when I could, but I was just constantly pushing down this anger that I had inside me. 
I pushed all thoughts about God out of my mind because I decided that everything that was happening to me was proof that he didn't exist. This filled me with hope. I could finally see a glimmer of light at the end of the long, dark tunnel I had been in. I began to feel happier. I had good friends and school was going well. I had some hope for my health and my future, but strangely, I started to realize that something was missing inside of me. My best friend's name is Tori, and she's the cutest, happiest person. For our whole friendship, she's always loved God with everything. Anytime something would work out for me, she would say, that's God working for you. She has been such a light in my life and is just always so content. Looking back now, it's amazing to me that even when I had convinced myself that God didn't exist, he was reaching out to me through her and showing me his love. Both Tori and my parents would not give up trying to get me to come to Southside. I loved them, but always refused. I even drove Tori to church a few times. I'd drop her off at the front doors and drive away. I remember one Sunday, I watched and saw all the friendly faces greeting her. I told myself, nope, I'm happy now, I don't need that. <laughs> but in my heart, I knew that there was something missing in my life. After months of being invited constantly, I decided to try it out. I felt so out of place the first time. I was still so angry. I walked in and was really uncomfortable and felt so awkward. But as soon as Pastor Mike stepped on stage and started speaking, something changed that I can't really describe. I remember him saying, you have a story, so go tell it. And I thought to myself, yeah, I do. I kept coming back. On my third Sunday, when Pastor Mike asked if anyone wanted to accept Jesus, in my heart I said yes. I was too scared to put my hand up, but it was a yes from me and I knew that God heard me. After all this time, I finally realized that this is what I was missing from my life. Slowly this church became a home to me. At Christmas I got a sunshine box from the church because of my illness and it made my Christmas so much brighter. I began serving with Tori on the welcome team, and I loved starting my Sunday smiling and welcoming people. Even through so many years of anger, I can see now God made a way for me and led me to a doctor that could help me. Even though it didn't happen as quickly as I thought it should, I know I can trust his perfect plan for my life. After saying yes to Jesus, I have watched my relationships become so much stronger. I have more patience. I know people are going through things and fighting battles. One Sunday, Pastor Mike said this quote, Be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. I love that, and I have made a real effort since then to be kind to everyone I meet. I can honestly say that since I said yes to Jesus, the anger and hurt I have felt for so many years is gone, and instead I am filled with hope. I am looking forward to my future, which for a lot of years I could not say. I'm getting baptized today because it is my next step in my walk with God. I am all in and am so excited for what God has in store for me in the future. Hey, thanks so much for watching today. Why don't you come join us at any of our four Sunday services? We meet at Sardis Secondary School in Chilliwack, British Columbia. And for more info, you can visit southsidelife.com.